This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome to the June 30 edition of the Tennessee World Affairs Council's Global News Review. I'm Patrick Ryan. And I'm Dick Bowers. I'm uh, Breck Walker. Today we're going to talk about the top five topics in the news from the past week. But uh, first, Dick and I would like to welcome uh, Breck to our news review. Dr. Breck Walker uh, received his PhD in diplomatic history from Vanderbilt in 2007. Uh, with a dissertation on the foreign policy of the Carter administration. Uh, he taught at Sewanee, the University of the South, and on the University of Virginia's Semester at Sea program in 2013 and 2015. Breck, I had a uh, Semester at Sea program, but I think a little different curriculum. Um, <laughs> sure was, <good> <laughs> uh, he worked as a historian in the historical office of the Office of the Secretary of Defense, uh, from 2013 to 2016, researching uh, a book on Pentagon cyber policy. Uh, so we probably need to have you back before we get into the elections. Well, we're in the election cycle, but more on that. And uh, before becoming a, a history professor, uh, Breck uh, worked for 20 years as an investment banker. Uh, so he's got uh, a distinguished career in, in business and uh, academia. And uh, Breck also serves as a member of the board of directors at the Tennessee World Affairs Council. And Breck, welcome to uh, the news review. Um, Great the, to be uh, here. Thanks for having me. We appreciate uh, you being with us. And I'll, I'll mention that I noticed on our attendee list uh, that you've attracted a few new uh, names to our audience. I saw a Mrs. Julie Walker on, on the list <laughs> and, and a few uh, other friends of yours. So well done. We'll have to keep you around as, uh, as an audience magnet. There you go. Okay, uh, Dick, uh, this week is ripe with material to choose from, uh, including stories like uh, China and the national security law in Hong Kong, cracking down on protesters, the imminent annex of the West Bank, but uh, we only have so much time, so uh, why don't you uh, tell us what uh, we've chose as our five topics this well, week? Well, you're right, Pat, there's a lot out there to, to chew on, but uh, the five we're gonna go with today are first, the COVID update, which is a kind of a pandemic kind of thing, and next, we're going to talk a little bit about U.S.-Russia relations and how Soviet military intelligence appears to have put bounties out there for the Taliban to kill American GIs in Afghanistan. Third, uh, India-China great power conflict at 14,000 feet. So that's, it's hard to fight a war up there, but the Indians and the, Paca and the Chinese are doing that. So we're going to dig into that, and Brett's going to tell us a lot more. Then we've got the U.S.-European relations and the fact that the U.S. just was slapped with a travel ban by the EU to go, we cannot go to Europe uh, because of the way we've been handling the pandemic. And finally, climate. And there are five big alarms and there was an excellent uh, report in the Washington Post and we'll dig into that. So that's the lineup for today, Pat. Okay. Um... Uh, Dick, we're going to get into the uh, question of the week here. We uh, um, will master the technology here one of these days. There you go. David Howell Evans and Adam Clayton from this Irish rock band contributed $112 million to the Impact Ireland Fund aimed at Irish companies producing technology for good. So this Irish rock band is A, U2, B, Rolling Stones, C, Mumford and Sons, D, Green Day. And you can write your answers up and we will let you know at the end of our talk today. Terrific. Well, uh, let's uh, jump into our uh, uh, first topic, which is our COVID review. And as you can see, uh, the week-to-week -week trend uh, is is pretty uh, pretty startling. Uh, over the weekend, the global picture uh, saw 180,000 new infections, which was a, a day uh, daytime total record, and uh, pushed the total global deaths 
over uh, half a million. So that's uh, that's where the global uh, stats are. Uh, U.S. Uh, deaths are 129,000. And, and as uh, we've all seen in the past couple of days in the news, uh, over half the states in the country are seeing an increase in their total daily cases. You can see that reflected uh, in the uh, the chart. Uh, so let's uh, let's talk about one, one case. Um, uh, Dick, you've got... Uh, well, you know, there's a kerfuffle going on out there because our president has been mad at the World Health Organization for reasons that I don't quite understand. But uh, they continue to be the front line of the battle against the virus around the world. And the Secretary General of the WHO said that uh, we all want this to be over. We all want to get on with our lives. But the hard reality is this is not even close to being over. So not even close to being over is a, is a scary kind of topic. And I know earlier on, like a month or so ago, people were talking about a second wave of the virus. Well, we're still in the first wave. We haven't got a second wave yet. But the first yeah. wave is not under control. And America is leading the world. Mm -hmm in terms of the number of people sick with the virus and in deaths. So we've got a lot of work to do. For sure. Uh, one thing that I noticed, uh, an article, interesting article at uh, bbc.com slash future, the article was called the COVID-19 changes that could last uh, long-term. And basically talked about uh, the fact that uh, our lifestyles are, are at the other side of this going to be different from the way they were. And it talked about even, even some things that uh, might see improvements. You know, we're going to be uh, transforming not just foreign policy and, and how we deal with uh, globalization, but just uh, normal lifestyle things, uh, supply chains, uh, a lot of things are going to change. Uh, Breck, I know you, you uh, had some comments about uh, uh, the business side of, uh, of what's going on here. Yeah, thanks, Pat. I, I want to talk about just a minute the economic impact of COVID. And in the paper almost every day, there's talk about what the unemployment rate is, what the jobless claims are, what GDP is doing, and uh, all those are uh, big numbers. But I want to talk a minute about the COVID impact on the federal government's fiscal situation. Uh, and certainly the federal government has had little choice but to spend a lot of money to try and uh, get us through this economically. But uh, but what they have done is, is certainly unprecedented. The deficit, the federal government deficit for uh, fiscal 2020, which ends on September the 30th, is uh, going to be $3.7 trillion, which is roughly 18, 19% of GDP. And the last time that we had a deficit that uh, a higher percentage of GDP was at the height of uh, World War II. The deficit in fiscal 2020 is going to be four times what the deficit was in fiscal 2019, and it's almost three times what the deficit was in 2009 at the height of the last uh, Great Recession. Uh, so the question is, once we finally begin an economic recovery, and undoubtedly we will, what will be the impact of, that, uh, of those kinds of deficits? And I think the short answer is, uh, we don't know because we've never been here before. I mean, as, as Dorothy said, we're not in Kansas anymore. So the, tradi the traditional economic view would be that those kinds of deficits are going to bring about uh, a lot of inflation. They're going to bring about higher interest rates once the economic recovery starts. And we're going to have uh, low growth for some period of time. That's, tr that's the traditional view. Now, there's a new view that's gaining some currency with this so-called uh, modern monetary theory that I have to say both Republicans and Democrats seem to have adopted even before COVID was here because of the deficits that they've both been running. But, uh, and, and that theory is that deficits don't matter, that uh, they're not going to cause an inflationary higher interest rate uh, environment. So we'll see. But certainly the silver lining to all this, economically speaking, is the performance of the stock market so far. The stock market generally has been a pretty good leading indicator about what the economy is going to do three, four, five quarters down the road. And after the market went off 30%, the broad indices in March, it's come roaring back. And the Dow today is uh, down year to date, only 11%, which in the, in, in the context of COVID is not uh, too bad at all. The S&P 500 is down about 6%. And NASDAQ is actually up 10%. And of course, NASDAQ is really technology oriented with Facebook and Google and whatnot. 
But the most amazing thing I've seen in a long time was about a month ago, Merrill Lynch, a single analyst for Merrill Lynch, put out an asset allocation recommendation as to what uh, investors that paid attention to him, how they should allocate their investable funds. And this is Merrill Lynch, right, who symbols the stock market bull and who always says put 60, 70% of your money in the, in the stock market. Their asset allocation recommendation over the next couple of years is 25% cash, 25% bonds, 25% gold, and 25% stock. <laughs> wow. Uh, that is a dire. That is uh, uh, anticipating a lot of uncertainty. So I just wanted to add that. Thank you. Well, Dick, wow. uh, you, you've, you've been storing all those bullions in your garage. You'll be in the good, Ready good to shape. Ready to go, right? Huh? All those Krugerrands. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, another thing that hit, struck me about this week was the, was the president's visa ban on uh, bringing in smart people to do work in the United States. And that's going to impact, I think, the tech sector really big. There's been a lot of pushback. But basically, what the president did is said that uh, if you're a person who brings extraordinary skills to Amazon, uh, and you're a foreigner, you don't get a visa anymore. So there's a ban of having these folks come in. If you're here, you get to stay, but once you leave, you can't necessarily come back. So that, that H-1B visas and all those types of visas are really gonna impact adversely in the tech center, right? Tech center, I think, so. Yeah. We'll see. I don't know, Breck, what do you think? Uh, I think that's, uh, uh, there, there's lots of things that I'd disagree with the president on, and that would be one of them. Yeah. That just doesn't right. make any sense to me. But anyway. Speaking of disagreeing with the president, let's move on to topic two, which is the uh, which is U.S.-Russia relations and the, uh, the, the rocket story over the weekend in the New York Times that uh, the Russian military intelligence, the GRU, placed bounties on American GIs in Afghanistan, uh, reportedly Just, just for paying. the record, Pat, you know, the GRU, you ready? So you can All right. Your Russian speakers, but that basically means Russian military intelligence. So okay. You're right. There you have it. GRU, uh, an element of, uh, of the Russian uh, government. And they, uh, they've been traced to uh, some other activities against Americans. But the, in this case, it was uh, payments of uh, cash and, and some Navy SEALs uh, and other special operators found caches of uh, American greenbacks uh, in, in Taliban strongholds in Afghanistan. And using some other uh, intelligence resources uh, concluded that uh, the Russian GRU was paying Taliban uh, for bounties on American GIs uh, in uh, in Afghanistan, and the um, uh, a couple of the key questions. You know, there's a there's a lot to unpack here. The Russian aggressiveness. There's the question about uh, the White House reaction. What, what did President Trump know? When did he know it? There's a report in the AP on uh, Monday that. Uh, uh, it was known um, in the intelligence community and in the White House as early as uh, a year ago. Uh, but the key question is uh, a briefing in the professional, uh, excuse me, the presidential daily briefing book in March. Did he read it? Did he not read it? Was he briefed on it? Uh, why did he invite Putin to the G7? Uh, we've got questions about the U.S. national security infrastructure. Um, what's going on with intelligence at the highest levels? What did the Pentagon do? Uh, was there any response from the U.S. Central Command? Uh, you know, we're concerned about force protection of our troops. Uh, what does this mean for future Taliban negotiations? So the Taliban is uh, negotiating with the U.S. And meanwhile, they're taking money from the Russians to kill Americans. Uh, and, and lastly, what, what should the response be to, to Moscow? And, and uh, I'll invite you guys to jump in. But uh, let, let me, uh, I don't want us to be relics of the Cold War. But we've seen, um, we've seen uh, Soviet and Russian behavior in the past that, um, uh, I don't think there's anything analogous to paying bounties on American GIs, but Dick, I, I can I can picture you, young Dick Bowers, in your uh, bunker in Berlin, back in the day when you were an, an army specialist. Is that right? Uh, Crypt a cryptologic sergeant. A sergeant. Yeah, well, uh, well, yeah, but I was a Russian linguist specialist, so whatever you want to. Call so, it. so you were doing signals intelligence back in the uh, deep, dark, deep dark days of the Cold War. I suspect that being at, in Berlin Station, um, 
the Soviets had a list of who was who around town. And if they wanted to, uh, you know, disturb the ox cart, they could have done something untoward to uh, this or that cryptologic uh, guy wandering around uh, Berlin. But uh, there was a certain understanding that, you know, well, there's a tit for tat out there and everybody kind of knew it. You know, if you do something to us, uh, we're going to do something worse to you. I mean, it's kind of what, what was the uh, Al Capone movie, though? You, if they, they, they kill one of yours, you kill two of theirs or something like that. Yeah. So basically, there were, there were unwritten rules that people lived by. But there was never in my experience any time where there was a bounty put upon the heads of American soldiers by mercenaries to go out and kill them and can bring them back. So this is, this is and there was all, very there was, new and very scary. There was also an ironclad understanding that uh, if you were out on the tip of the sword, you had the full backing and support of the chain of command up to, up to the Oval Office. So, you know, Amen. Um, I spent some time in submarines doing things that um, people write books about, that, but those who are on those submarines can't talk about. But we knew that when we went out on a mission that uh, was approved by the president, um, he had our back. So uh, this is this is disturbing and and in a number of ways. Um, Pat, I'd I'd kind of split this into into two big issues that we need to come to grips with. One is what exactly were the Russians doing, and how do we react to that, and and where do we go from here with them? That's one. The other is. What is going on within our national security institutions so that you have a president saying he never got briefed on this very important vital matter? Uh, either he's telling the truth and then that means there's dysfunction at the highest levels within the National Security Administration, or somehow he didn't remember uh, that that was there. Now, it, it's been reported many, many times so far that he just blows off his presidential daily briefing often. And so it, my sense is it was probably there. Somebody may have said something about it to him and he wanted to talk about something else. So whether this rises the level of dereliction of duty or not, I leave up to the audience to decide, but it's clear that, that what went on should not have gone on. Yeah, there's definitely problems in, in the who's, who's talking to who and, and who in the National Security Council is uh, making sure that uh, the, the president's uh, interest or lack of interest in intelligence findings, um, intelligence information that's being briefed uh, is yeah. followed up upon. And, and that, you know, he's had five phone calls with Vladimir Putin since uh, supposedly he, he received the PDB with the briefing and has uh, in the interim invited Putin uh, to the G7 meeting that he was trying to call at the White House for June, which uh, uh, was set aside because of just complications. Um, the biggest complication being Angela Merkel saying, no, she didn't want to go uh, because Putin was invited, et cetera. But uh, it, it, it raises a lot of uncomfortable questions. And, and, and we've sort of talked in the past about the margins of the Trump administration. But this is uh, a new level of disturbing revelation about yeah. what's going on in, in the government regarding national security. I agree with you. If I ask you all a question just with your military and uh, diplomatic backgrounds, and I agree certainly with everything that you said, but my question is, is this the kind of leak that you'd rather not see because the press turns it into a political football and it is not a good way for national security policy to be made? Uh, I guess the answer to that is in a normal world, these kinds of things you want held within the government until the government can adequately, uh, you know, tee up what the questions are and how to respond to it. At some point, I think the American people need to be told uh, that uh, a hostile uh, government is killing uh, their troops in the battlefield. Um, the American people deserve this, to this know that. This evidently started many, many months ago. So I, I agree with Pat perfectly at times when if you find something like this, you would staff it up and, and really figure out what do we do if they do this A and B and tit and tat and all that kind of stuff. But that the bottom line is eventually you go public and, and we're not in a normal world. So how do you handle something like this? And especially when you have your president saying, oh, nobody ever told me I didn't know anything about this. So the question is, well, who did know something about it and what should have been, been done about it? And how do the American people react to this kind of leadership? So it's a big issue. 
yeah, uh, Breck, I, I think you're right. This isn't the kind of thing you want uh, a Saturday night in the New York Times. This is the kind of thing that uh, the president uh, gives an Oval Office address and says, uh, look, uh, the Russians are uh, putting a bounty on American GIs. Uh, we will not stand for this. This is These are the things that we have done, and these are the things that we're prepared to do uh, and go from there. Um, yeah. But But this is not a a normal functioning uh, operation. We've had uh, denials and uh, people saying, well, you know, it, he didn't, nobody read it to him. Um, it's, it's just not the way to run a railroad. Well, Pat, the other thing is that the Russians have been coming, I think, more and more aggressive in what they do and how they do it. And it was very clear that they were meddling very deeply into the American election system back in 2016. It's clear that they're poised to do such things again. Uh, and bounties on American soldiers is just beyond the pale. So well, you know, uh, assassinating uh, uh, people in, in the United Kingdom, Absolutely. Uh, annexation of Crimea, invading Georgia. Um, yeah, the, the, uh, the Eastern uh, Ukraine oh, issue. Targeting cyber attacks against the you know, Baltics, all those kinds of things are. Yeah. You know, not normal behavior in the kind of a world we want to have where everybody does kumbaya. So Breck, in the period that uh, that you studied, uh, sort of in the midst of the Cold War, that was pre-Reagan when, when things really heated up. But uh, in your recollection of, of those days, anything stands out of, you know, the, uh, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in 79. So yeah. you were probably looking at, at that piece. But U.S.-Russian relations, what, what's your reflection on... Um, the give and take? Well, this is, I mean, this is somewhat of a, not somewhat, this is an academic perspective uh, uh, for sure. And so I haven't been on the front lines and uh, don't have the same feelings that I probably would if I had been. But uh, certainly when the Russians invaded Afghanistan in 1979, at the tail end of the Carter administration and in the Reagan administration, the U.S. geared up in a big way to get weaponry and other, other types of support to the Mujahideen, many of which, or maybe not many, but some of which ended up forming the Taliban uh, once the Russians were uh, evicted. And that aid to the Mujahideen was all about killing Russian soldiers uh, to get them to, to get them bogged down perhaps and to get them to withdraw and move them back. And I'm not saying the objectives were wrong, but we were uh, helping proxy forces uh, kill as many Russian soldiers as we could. And a good strategy, but I don't know that there's a, and I agree on the bounties, but I don't know that there's a vast difference between, uh, other than objectives, but in terms of tactics, I don't know that there's a vast difference between those two situations. Well, I, I, I think if you view it in light of the, the Cold War, and certainly you can make the case that uh, Russian ships going into Haiphong Harbor in Vietnam supplying the Viet Cong is analogous to the Mujahideen in, in Afghanistan, but you would like to think that the Cold War is over and that our relationship with Russia in 2020 is now at the point where we're not having to figure out what the response is to Russians uh, paying to kill Americans. No, good point, no, no, good point. So Dick, uh, apart from not getting emotional about this, uh, what, what do you uh, think we should be uh, looking at as, as uh, the next couple of steps here, I, I know this is going to this is going to be one more firestorm in Washington over over politics. But uh, even the Republicans are lining up uh, congressional. I, I think I think Congress is going to have to take the lead on this because the White House is not. Yeah. And the, the question of you know what what the president should do if we had a functioning national security apparatus and the president was. The, thinking about defending the interests of the United States rather than perhaps how he wins some more votes from his base. So I, Congress has got to take the lead because I don't think it's going to come from the White House. There might be some tepid response about, uh, well, we need to find out right now they're in the denial game. We're not sure this is true. You know, and, but I think as an old crypto guy, I would bet you that somewhere out there, there's a trail that goes to recordings of people talking about this, as well as maybe wire transfers of sums of money that go from Russian banks to somebody in Afghanistan for this purpose. So I, I think there'll be more that will be coming out. 
Yeah, th these things will leak out. And I think the, the initial uh, intelligence pin on this was that the SEALs, in addition to finding the cash, found cell phones and traceback numbers. So um, I don't know how much of a smoking gun. And in fact, it was disappointing to see uh, that at first the White House invited a group of Republican congressmen yeah. to the White House to get briefed. And then a day later, the Democratic congressman uh, and one of the Republicans came out and said, well, you know, this, this really wasn't verified that within the intelligence community, there was one dissenting organization. And uh, I, I did a tour in the Pentagon as uh, uh, an analyst and worked on national intelligence estimates with the community of intelligence agencies. And I can tell you, I never saw one NIE, and this was during the days of the Sandinistas and the Contras in, in Central America. Uh, and I never saw any one single NIE that didn't have a dissent from one or more uh, of the 16 or uh, 17 intelligence agencies. Yeah, yeah and, and absolutely. The world of intelligence is, is not the world of absolutes. No. I mean, often, and, and you get indications, you get hints of activity or something that's going on. Um, the intelligence community has to cross a threshold saying, hey, this is big enough problem that assuming that this is right, we've got to alert the superiors. The White House needs to know about this versus, no, we got to gather more information. So in the president's daily brief, um, there are things in there that are our estimates, right? We think this is going on. We're working on it. We're trying to get a better take on it. But the idea that this was somehow not briefed to the president just blows my mind. Well, it reminds me of the uh, pre presidential uh, daily brief in August of um, uh, 2001, when there was an estimate that uh, bin Laden intended to attack the United States with aircraft. Yeah. And it was, you know, was it a sure thing? No. Um, should somebody have been thinking, well, what, what do we do if this is true? Yeah. So you're right. Intelligence uh, will never be 100%. Uh, that's not the nature of the business, but you've got to act upon what, uh, what you have in your hands. Hey, can I ask one other question on this before we leave, just to maybe you touched on it earlier, but if, it, if it's proved up to everybody's satisfaction within the national security grouping and the military side, in your all's mind, what would be uh, in magnitudes a proper response, diplomatically or militarily? I think you would have a public response and a non-public response. Um, and the public response is, is a call them out. Uh, we, We've got sanctions out there now, supposedly, so there would be more of that going on. We would also let people know that uh, we're not going to tolerate this and probably get go back to some clandestine Cold War kind of activity that uh, we're not going to talk about, but that, that would send the signal that, hey, you guys want to play this game, we can play it too, and it's going to be hardball. Yeah, I don't think it would be so much a Connecticut or a, a violent response. There could be uh, some cyber activity, some uh, uh, offensive cyber uh, that uh, would, the Russians would definitely know that it was a signal that uh, it, it could be destructive not in some sense. As usual. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we also have to keep in mind that it's not just the United States. We have our NATO allies. This is a, a NATO theater of operations. Uh, the Brits, the Dutch, and, and others, uh, Germans are, are there. Yeah. So... Yeah, so our president needs to take leadership and, and uh, get to get together with his uh, fellow NATO leaders and, and uh, tell the Russians uh, this, this is not going to be tolerated. Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, enough ranting on, uh, on that for me. It, it uh, it's just a, that important of an issue. And I, uh, it, it seems like every month we're, we're looking at a, a new eruption of some sort that we think this, this is the final uh, issue to, to deal with, but uh, they, the hits keep coming. Uh, speaking of hits uh, continuing to come, uh, Dr. Breck Walker on China, India, conflict at 14,000 feet. And Dick, you've been at 14,000 feet, right? I have, and so is Breck, sort of, on Mount Rainier's 14,000. So you, you guys, you, uh, we were you, both stomping around on that mountain at different times. But, you guys uh, are, are mountaineers and expedition uh, people. Uh, the, the, you know, 10th Mountain Division trained in the Rockies and in the Sierra Nevadas for the Second World War, and they're still doing that kind of stuff. But it's a different kind of warfare once you get above 10,000 feet. So okay. anyway, let's let, there, uh, there's more going on, and Breck's going to tell us about it. 
Okay, Breck, um, over to you and I'll, I'll tee up your slide here. Oh, well, sure, thanks. I, I would say that on Mount Rainier, I think Dick has been about 2,000 feet at least higher than, than I was. So uh, the training <laughs> came in handy for him. Anyway, uh, over the last uh, six weeks or so, there have been a, a few confrontations between Indian troops and Chinese troops in Himalayas, as Dick said, up at 12 to 14,000 feet along a disputed border between those two countries. Uh, these confrontations culminated in sort of a melee that occurred on June the 15th, uh, where 20 Indian soldiers and an unreported number of Chinese soldiers were killed. And of course, this raises concern not only in the United States, but globally, that if this conflict were to escalate, it'd be an escalation involving the world's two most populous countries, as well as uh, nuclear armed countries. So uh, people are keeping an eye on this right now. Now, without going into great detail, the disputes, the dispute, the border dispute dates back to uh, uh, late colonial times, around 1914, when uh, the British, uh, which uh, ran uh, British India at that point in time, somewhat unilaterally set the border between British India and what was then the Republic of China. And China uh, never really agreed to that border. And then in 1947, India becomes an independent nation. And in 1949, the People's Republic of China is established after the successful communist revolution. And that border dispute followed these two uh, now uh, new countries. Um, there was a war in 1962 where the Chinese uh, encroached well beyond this uh, original British mandated border. And uh, the, the war only lasted a month, the, um, and a sort of a hazy line of control as part of a, uh, as part of a, a ceasefire, there was a hazy line of control that was established between the two countries. And uh, while there was another confrontation, a military confrontation in 67, basically, and there's periodic jockeying for position in terms of building roads and, and whatnot, basically uh, for the last 45 years, there have been no casualties involved. And so this is an unusual, potentially serious uh, incident right now. Now reports as to what actually happened on June the 15th have been pretty sketchy. Uh, by agreement uh, under both sides, uh, patrols, troop patrols are not supposed to carry guns. And so the early accounts are that this uh, melee that occurred on June the 15th, the casualties were caused by fist rocks and clubs, some, some of which were wrapped in barbed wire, apparently. Both sides blame the other for starting it. Both sides accuse the other of kind of building up their military presence along this border area uh, since the first of the year. And appearances, at least it seems to me, appearances are that both sides seem to want to de-escalate uh, the situation right now and avoid uh, a wider conflict. But my comments and questions, and I'm interested in what uh, Dick and Pat think about this, my comments and questions, I have three or four would be these. This area seems to have, to me, no economic or strategic geopolitical value whatsoever. So you'd think that there wasn't anything worth uh, fighting over. Secondly, China over the last several months under uh, President Xi has been very aggressive in asserting its sovereignty in places like the South China Sea, in the new national security law we've seen in Taiwan, in violations of airspace, I mean, in the Hong Kong, in violations of airspace uh, involving Taiwan. So is this fracas in India part of that aggressive sovereignty uh, stance? Uh, India, my second point would be, India has been cozying up to the United States because of this rise of Chinese power. They've been cozying up to the United States for the last 20 years or more. Uh, President Trump and Prime Minister Modi seem to have an affinity for one another. I believe there was a big arms agreement signed uh, in February. Uh, and this may be, this fracas may be China's way of saying to India, hey, not too much, not too much cozying up. And then the third thing I'd say is that uh, India has aggressive economic goals that it needs to achieve if it's gonna to continue to raise its population, the economic standard of living of its population. And China as a major, as a major trading partner is important to those goals. Um, at the same time, excuse me, Prime Minister Modi is, I think everybody would call him a religious nationalist. 
uh, and a little bit of a populist. And uh, after this fracas on June the 15th, there were many calls throughout India for Modi to do something to India's honor had been impugned and we can't take this from the Chinese. And he has some political pressures that the Chinese president doesn't face. So if this did begin to escalate a little bit, it'll be, it would be interesting to see how Modi reacts to any political pressure he gets to do something, even though it might not be in, China, in uh, India's economic interest to uh, do that. But when I see Chinese, when I see Chinese policy over the last couple of years, I had to go look this up, but it reminds me of a saying by Mao Zedong, which I think sometimes describes Chinese foreign policy. And that saying is, quote, from Mao, everything under heaven is utter chaos. The situation is excellent. <laughs> so why are they doing this, Breck? Was this, a, was this a national level strategic decision or did some little local commander well, up there get bored and decided, well, I'm tired of those guys, you know, whatever. I don't know. Dick, time, time out here. We, we invite this guy on the show here, and he poses the questions to you and me <laughs> that, that I was going to ask him. Like, you know, this is a bunch of rocks up at 14,000 feet. It's not like the South China Sea that uh, there's, you know, uh, minerals or oil or, or uh, sea lanes of communication. Yeah. Uh, so that's a, that's a pretty darn good question. And I think it gets to your later points, Breck, that uh, both of these countries' leaders see that, uh, and, and they are extremely nationalistic population bases. We, we saw that uh, when NATO dropped uh, a bomb on the Chinese embassy in Belgrade uh, in Beijing, it, it was held to pay by at the mistake. U.S. embassy. By, in, it, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you, Mr. Ambassador. <laughs> Um, yes, an, an errant bomb uh, struck the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, and, and there were riots, and uh, the U.S. embassy paid a price. Uh, so, so there is that uh, capability within both of these countries to use a foreign adventure uh, to to galvanize uh, support at home. So, I, th I think that's a piece of it. Uh, Dick, you you were saying before I rudely interrupted you there. Go ahead. No, he didn't rudely interrupt. I was just bantering back and forth. I was asking, what do you think? Why is this an assertion of trying to, of China trying to push itself to the international stage and say we're a big boy player and you better not mess with us anymore and we're going to tidy up our borders and not going to take any stuff from somebody else? It's hard. I mean, I, I guess I think that you never know, but it's hard for me to think that. Uh, China gets much out of uh, uh, stirring the pot here. They may get an unexpected reaction from India because of the political pressure on Modi. Yeah. Uh, it may drive India closer to the United States. Uh, so it's hard for me, although again, the Mao quote, it may just be they like to create a little chaos every now and then, but if I had to bet today with very incomplete information, I'd bet it was a local, uh, a local uh, occurrence. Yeah. That uh, went wrong. Yeah, yeah you I, know, another saying that um, uh, the Chinese are fond of, I, I think it was um, Deng Xiaoping said that uh, hold, hold the, the position of, of growing power. Um, I, I don't know the exact translation, but don't show your power. Uh, let, uh, let your power grow and, and don't put it on display. And uh, I, I think that was uh, uh, being followed until about three, four or five years ago. President Xi has become uh, more aggressive. And, and Breck, we, uh, we had a report uh, about a month ago about the Wolf Warriors, which are, is the name given to Chinese diplomats around the world, taken from a, uh, a movie in China of the same name, Wolf Warriors. But these were diplomats who were being aggressive and offensive uh, in the diplomatic circuit to challenges to China's growing strength. And, um, you know, some some old timers in China were saying, hey, you know, this isn't the way to, to do things. Uh, don't don't annoy the West. They're, they're trying to build, build the Belt and Road across uh, the old Silk Road and, and get uh, Europe engaged and uh, Africa and South America. So, 
there, there could be diplomatic consequences to a, an apparently overly aggressive China, in, in my opinion. And it, it could, as you point out, galvanize uh, the relationship between the United States and India. And India is one of the key pieces of the large powers in Asia that the United States is courting to help check China's rising power, the others being Australia and Japan. So, uh, you know, another another milestone in the in the saga of what's going on with China. And there's another Chinese saying totally off topic that my wife always talks to me about, which is, um, if you want to be happy for a day, buy a pig. If you want to be happy for a month, get married. If you want to be happy for a lifetime, become a gardener. <laughs> there you go. Well, we'll have to we'll have to analyze that one uh, a little more deeply. Um, but just to, just to wrap this thing up, I I I tend to agree with you, Brick. I don't think this is uh, a piece in a broader mosaic of Chinese uh, pushing out their influence in the world. This was an isolated incident, and what caused it, and how it happened. But I didn't, you know, neither side is an interested in pushing this further or escalating it. Uh, so. I think they'll be talking to each other. I think this will push India closer to the United States, um, which is not a bad thing for us. But I don't think it's going to be a major long-term impediment between the countries. I think the... Uh I think the takeaway from this is to watch what's going on in India because there's been in the Indian papers uh, since uh, the killings uh, yeah. up there in the, the high mountains, uh, there's been a lot of conversation about how to respond because clearly India is a nuclear power, but not on par with, uh, with China. So they don't want this to uh, become a military adventure, but they're looking at uh, economic, uh, you know, just like the United States, we're looking at decoupling the Chinese economic uh, relationship, which, you know, it's kind of a mind-boggling uh, uh, approach, uh, but China is looking at the same, uh, excuse me, India is looking at the same thing, becoming more economically independent, uh, uh, less dependent on Chinese uh, technology and et cetera. So I, I think uh, the, the after action report here will include looking at what goes on in India. I did, just to add one last thing, I did see in the paper yesterday that uh, Prime Minister Modi took the very harsh retaliatory measures of banning the use of 59 Chinese internet apps in India, including TikTok, which is a video sharing app. So big, big news there. there a, lot of, a lot of um, Chinese uh, gen, gen, what generation would that be? Uh, TikTok people. Uh, <laughs> gen Z. Okay. Gen Z, thank you, sir. Okay, moving on. Uh, we're running along on time here, so we're, we're going to just dip into uh, this story uh, from last week that the European Union was considering uh, not allowing U.S. Uh, visitors to the EU uh, when they open up their borders, uh, and I believe that uh, border opening is uh, is pretty soon, 1 July maybe. We'll have to check that date. But uh, it, it is now formal that the EU uh, will uh, bar travelers from the U.S. And, uh, and Dick, you, you note that that's uh, residence, not citizens. My understanding, it is not nationality. It is residence. So okay. If you're, a, if you're a United States citizen living in Canada, and Canada is on the list of countries that can travel, then you can go ahead and go so uh, the story there is is basically that uh, the EU is uh, over a certain point in their uh, recovery from COVID and they're they're reopening their borders and they uh, want to allow travel into the e EU, but that uh, given our situation dealing with the coronavirus, uh, Americans will uh, be banned. And you can see on the slide there the countries that uh, are permitted. Um, and, you know, there's some places that uh, Rwanda, uh, Morocco, Uruguay, um, and China um, that are allowed to uh, go to the EU and, and uh, the United States is not. Uh, there, there are some exceptions, but uh, basically it's, it's a blanket uh, disapproval of, of how the United States has dealt with uh, COVID. And, and Breck, you might be able to comment on, on what the impact to uh, business and trade and, and investment and commerce. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of pent up desire in the uh, commercial sector to, to get things back on track and not, uh, not having business travel to Europe is, is certainly going to delay that. Oh, yeah, very definitely is. And I have wondered whether a little bit this travel ban also may be in reaction to uh, the 
significant dissatisfaction that almost all of Western Europe has with President Trump's, President Trump's fairly unilateral policies. I noticed that, I guess in the last week, or uh, you guys would know, that Trump, uh, without, reportedly, without conversations with the Germans, uh, reduced U.S. troop strength in uh, Germany by a third, and that there was uh, understandably a lot of angst about that in Germany, not least because there was no conversation about it. Uh, one of the major German newspapers, I forget which one, just ran a poll that asked Germans, uh, do you have confidence that President Trump will do the right thing when it comes to Europe? And only 13% of Germans said yes. And that is such a significant decline. They were one of our strongest friends and allies for decades. And it's all gone, been squandered. Yeah. So uh, that's uh, one, more, one more item in the news there. Uh, that uh... Well, I mean, I think you can take this two ways. One, I, I agree with Breck that the, the, there's no love lost between the Europeans and the Trump administration. And on issue after issue, what traditionally has been a good relationship among friends and allies, uh, that's gone down the tubes. But on the other hand, just looking from a scientific point of view at the data, given that we are leading the world in the number of cases and that we're having spikes keep going up, I wouldn't let us come in either, right? Until <laughs> we got our act together. So yeah. you know, politics aside, I mean, from a purely public health point of view, I think you've got to make sure that those countries that are, don't have their COVID under control need to be quarantined, stay, stay away. Well, Dick, you know, when we started this uh, program a couple of months ago, we, you know, tried to adhere to international issues, but it seems more and more that uh, anything on the, the global landscape uh, ties directly back to what's going on internally in the United States. Uh, yeah, somewhat, but, but, but that's because we have been a vital, important power in the world. And for most of the world, what the United States did really mattered. Uh, and, and now it's sort of chaos and confusion. So we're, you know, maybe we need to get a pig to be happy for one day or something. I don't know. <laughs> we'll figure it out. But we got, we've got other problems. I mean, we've been talking COVID and all that stuff, but there's a big problem with the, with the world's uh, environmental catastrophe that's basically rocking along, Pat, right? Yes. And the Washington Post had an excellent article this week that, that kind of, Holy cow, you know, all these things going on, so. Well, I, I don't think cow was the word we used, but uh, yeah, it was. <laughs> I know, it was it, not. It, it was uh, certainly, uh, in, in terms of this one article, putting everything into context uh, was yeah. really uh, a shocking portrayal of what's, what exactly is going on. And, you know, we talked about, um, I guess it was in, Early April, Dick, there were clearing skies and people in yeah. in uh, the positive side of the, of the cities. Cities down. in India were, were able to see the Himalayas and and uh, the fish were swimming in the canals of Venice and and we yeah. thought, wow, this this uh, there's That's an upside some positive to this. Aspects. But uh, reading this article, uh, clearly we we have other things uh, going on and and uh, again, uh, Dick, I, I think. Our, uh, our audience might want to take a look at this. Again, it's the Washington Post from June 28th, and the title of the article is The World's Climate Catastrophe Worsens Amid the Pandemic. And it, it talks about uh, we're living in, in the biggest annual carbon crash uh, ever recorded. And I'll, I'll leave this uh, slide up here for a minute. But one of the things that they talked about was the fact that uh, last week it was over 100 degrees above the Arctic Circle. Yeah. And and the uh, the normal temperatures there at this time of year would be in the 60s. Uh, so that's I mean that's just one of many uh, items that uh, that people are worried about the wildfires in uh, Siberia and the peatlands uh, that are out of control and some of them are what scientists are calling zombie blazes uh, that were uh, fires that erupted last year and never completely went out they just uh, were smothered underneath these peat fields and uh, erupted um, again, and, and that the Siberian Arctic is uh, warming at uh, twice the rate of the rest of the world. Um, 
Yeah, it just just goes down on and on uh, talking about what's what's going on in the world. Well, you got locusts that are hitting in India, right? And in Africa, food insecurity is going to become more and more rampant, I believe. Yeah. Uh, that kind of thing people can maybe tolerate for a few days, but if it's rampant and continues for a long time, those are the seeds of revolution and chaos. And this is going to, I think we're going to see a fair amount of that. Well, the locusts are attributed to uh, to climate change, the uh, the changing weather pattern in the Indian Ocean, and and uh, more moisture in the areas where the locusts uh, uh, originate from. The the Horn of Africa, uh, from Kenya up through uh, Sudan, has has been picked right. over uh, across to Somalia, and, and now the locusts are in uh, are in India. Fortunately, uh, the the growing season was such that they got most of the crops in. But uh, this this is an incredible uh, development around the world. Uh, the Amazon rainforest, um, the government is less able to prevent loggers and miners and others from going in and, and setting blazes. So um, take a look at this uh, this article and let's uh, you know we've got the pandemic going on, but we can't. Uh, climate change is is the ongoing existential threat. There'll be no vaccine for climate change. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. All righty. Well, we've uh, we pushed the clock on here. Uh, uh, Breck, anything more to add on any of our topics? Uh, we're we're going to do the, the quiz question and, and uh, have a little wrap-up conversation. But anything on on these five topics? I, I think given everything going on in the world, we, we uh, uh, hopefully had a pretty good rundown and, and appreciate your voice on on uh, the India-China issue and, and the Enjoy economic you, uh, piece. I hope you come back. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a real treat to be here. Thank you, guys. Well, let's, uh, Dick, let's take a look at the uh, quiz question. The quiz question? Uh, did you I'm get gonna, it? Did you get it yesterday? Can I? Oh, you gave, they gave us the answer. I did. I got that one. You okay. Too? Now, what, what is all this? I mean, what were they doing with the money? Impact Ireland Fund? Uh, well, there's um, uh, a, a technology-based uh, fund that uh, they're contributing to. And uh, what they're hoping to do with uh, some of the money is, is develop um, technology for good, meaning the, more specifically uh, targeting cloud-based technology companies in Ireland uh, in sectors such as education, uh, healthcare, food and agriculture, as well as energy and the environment. And they're investing across uh, the board in Irish uh, companies. So uh, good, good for them. Um, Good thing to be happening in Ireland. Um, and you're talking about Ireland. Don't we have something coming up with Ireland? Uh, yes, we do. Uh, I'm glad you asked, uh, Ambassador. <laughs> well, I'm glad I did too. <laughs> next <Commander>. next week. <laughs> next week we have uh, on our evening show on Tuesday night, uh, Global Nashville, uh, with Carl Dean. Uh, mayor Dean will be talking with the Lord Mayor of Belfast, Northern Ireland. Uh, part of Ireland, the the island of Ireland, uh, but uh, part of the UK uh, as a separate entity. And Belfast, uh, as you probably know, Dick, is a sister city to Nashville, one of one of the eight sister cities that Nashville has. So uh, uh, Mayor Dean will be talking with the Lord Mayor, uh, Councillor Frank McCubre, uh, and his team from the Economic uh, Development uh, Group there, uh, Invest uh, Northern Ireland and, and so forth. So they'll be talking about uh, challenges that mayors face in the age of COVID, uh, municipal uh, challenges that mayors probably have faced since the first, uh, the dawn of the first pothole. Uh, but they'll uh, also talk about building bridges uh, between Nashville and Belfast and uh, cultural exchanges and so forth. So that's uh, next week. And normally we do uh, that show at 7 p.m. Central Time. Uh, but given the time difference with Belfast, we'll be doing it at 10 a.m. Central Time. Uh, and they'll be on, that should be 4 p.m. Belfast time. So if you're watching from Belfast, you'll, you'll uh, know when to tune in. So that should be a great program, Mayor Carl Dean with uh, the Lord Mayor of Belfast. Um, Dick, what, what are you reading lately? I think you uh, wanted, wanted to tell us about uh, something. You know what? I'm, I, I, let me be honest. Well, while you're I, I touted this book before. And I'm touting it again because it really, really is a good book. And I, in fact, it's so good. I, I have a, one of my grand nephews uh, just turned 13. 
and I sent him this book and I said, $20 will follow if you'll do me a one-page book report. He is now on page eight of his book report because wow. he found this so fascinating and so interesting. I don't know if you know this book or not, Breck, but I, I really do like it. And this is the other one that I would suggest. Um, we need to start thinking about where we came from and where we're going and what kind of mistakes we made in the past and how we overcome all these things and the, the fact that we're trying to deal with our racial issues in the United States and so is the rest of the world. So going back to some basics, I recommend it. Rick, you, you into anything? I know you're, you're down there in Florida. You probably uh, have your, your feet up on the beach with a, a beach book. The two books I would recommend real quickly. One is just out by Richard Haas called The World, A Brief Introduction. And uh, I'm about three quarters through that. And for somebody who just wants a big picture history and a big picture overview of a lot of the key foreign policy issues facing the U.S. and globally, I think he does a really good job. And I'm uh, going to make sure that uh, my two sons read that. The other one I read earlier this year called Say Nothing uh, by Patrick Keefe, who's a journalist. But Say Nothing, it got a lot of press. Uh, and a lot of positive book reviews. It is a, a, a nonfiction book about Northern Ireland looking at a particular murder that took place uh, as part of the Troubles in the early 70s. And as it follows, uh, investigates that murder in print, it tells a lot about the wider Northern Ireland situation. And I thought it was really well done. Terrific. Well, I like the Haas book and, and I'm going to have to get a copy of that. Was it uh, The World 101? Was that it? The World, uh, just The World? I think it was the World 101. It was the World, and then and, I believe the title. An introduction. An introduction. A brief it, introduction. It sounds. It, it, was, it sounds like a freshman textbook that you'd have on your semester at sea. Well, so he, he, in fact, Richard, it, it sort of touted this as being a book that, that for for survey courses of international relations. Right. This would be a yeah. very good kind of read for them. So that, that okay. was kind of his audience that he was shooting for. Well, my books are a little behind, but uh, I'd like to just mention uh, the current special edition of National Geographic. There's a, uh, a special section on COVID, how the world is uh, dealing with that, and really some uh, spectacular photos and articles about uh, Everest and the assault on Everest. You probably have seen uh, some of these in, uh, in recent press uh, about, uh, you know, there are now so many people going up there and lines of... Uh, of guys like you two um, waiting to get up there. But there's also a, a really fantastic uh, piece about the Asian uh, rivers and a, a handout, uh, Asia's vital lifelines, and talking about the impact that will come from uh, the diminishment of the major rivers uh, that run through Asia from the Himalayas. So the Great Basin there uh, it will be of uh, great consequence in the future. Let's turn uh, quickly to uh, some questions we have. Uh, Joan Rice asked uh, Ambassador Bowers, uh, talking about accountability of the president uh, for activities. Uh, so this goes back to the story about the, the Russian bounty. Uh, we try not to get too political here, but Dick, I'll, I'll let you navigate uh, the, uh, the consequences for a commander in chief for not getting the job done other than the next election he's held to account. That, I guess that's about all we could say there. Uh, unless you have something more. Uh, well, crimes of treasonous activities once he's out of office. I mean, yeah, I think treason is, uh, is an extremely strong word and it's, uh, it's defined yes. as a specific <laughs> act. Uh, uh, I, I don't think we're, we're there. Or impeachment but, but, or something. However, if he does criminal activities, uh, my understanding is that there is not, a, not any blanket immunity and that, that, that if it's within the statute of limitations that a criminal case could be brought. So. Post, post office. Yes. Not the post office, but post holding the office. Yes. After. Um, and Bob Teague from the UN Association, uh, he thanks us for a truly enjoyable conversation. I have to echo those comments. Breck, uh, welcome welcome to the uh, the cadre of uh, news reviewers. We, we hope you'll be back. Um, Dick. Thank you for having me again. It's great fun. 
you bet. And just a reminder to everybody uh, this evening, we have our global dialogue. We are talking with uh, staff members, uh, three, three folks from the Office of Policy Planning at the Department of State. We'll be talking about the future of U.S. foreign policy. Take a look at tnwac.org. you find links to all the uh, programs we've had uh, previously, and they are starting to accumulate. Uh, we've done two or three a week since uh, early March, and you can find those also on youtube.com slash TNWAC. Uh, but if you're on our website, take a look at our membership page. Tomorrow, the 1st of July, we start membership month. So uh, look forward to uh, uh, having some conversation with us about becoming members of the World Affairs Council. So we My can- checks in uh, the mail, Pat. My <laughs> checks in the mail. Excellent, excellent. Really, seriously, join this <laughs> organization. Let's make the world a better place. Great. Okay. Well, thanks, everybody. Uh, this has uh, been the news review from the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Uh, thanks for watching, and please go home and be safe. Mm -hmm.